Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. Good, everyone. It is episode 113 and it's the 11th of June. We've got a huge show for you guys coming up. So we've got two more interviews from the Freeman Conference all those weeks ago. Uh, we're flying through them. So th- today we've got Daisy Cousins, YouTube star, star of Sky News After Dark. We're going to be talking to her about being part of the vast right-wing conspiracy, also her career and how she deals with you know all the online trolls that she gets. And we're also going to be talking to Steve Baxter from Shark Tank about uh, his reaction to the election, what it means for the business community and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. That's the only person who's ever rocked up to an interview in a Starter Dani t-shirt, mm. which I found was just in your face. He let, he let you know what his agenda was straight off the bat. Well, it was a very lovely shade of green. And of course, it's Steve's second uh, go on the show. Yeah, recurring friend of the show. So eventually we are going to be starting to get some of his money. I think that's the agreement that, that we have. That's the long-term plan. That was agreement between you and me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just now realizing we never CC Steve Baxter in those emails. Well, so potential oversight by us, but hopefully we get some money coming in pretty soon. Yep. Uh, now, we also have a bit of podcast uh, housekeeping to do. So, uh, as keen-eared listeners would know, Nina, no longer part of the podcast, we miss her terribly, but we do have Mark Burgess coming onto the show, so he's going to be pressing the buttons for us and occasionally chiming in when he has uh, something to correct us or chime in with. So, uh, do you have a microphone, Mark? Yeah, I think so. Okay, it's somewhere around there. Um, thank you for speaking into it, but <laughs> we'll get past that. So uh, every heartbreak comes opportunity. That's the way. You and know, so just well, use it as a catalyst for great change. That's right. So, welcome to the show, Burjo. Yeah. Go on your mind. All right. Uh, cool. So I guess we'll get into some of the main stories that have uh, happened in yeah. the last week, Pete. Let's do it. And I think the big one in Australia uh, was the AFP raids on ABC yeah. and some, and a News Corp journalist as well. I don't think we need to go over the details of the story because I think literally everyone knows it at this mm. point. The point is... Everyone knows what's happened to the story. Everyone's got their own two cents on it. And I'm finally, I'm glad we're finally, as a country, talking about the importance of press freedom. Well, it's been wonderful seeing a lot of lefties out there discover press freedom as an issue they suddenly care about years and years after, of course, there's been so many well-documented cases of press freedom breaches in this country. Yeah, so, like, you know, they're happy to go. Andrew Bolt should be going to court for those articles. Mm. Bill Leake should be handed through the Australian Human Rights Commission for that cartoon. Yep. Second, it's the ABC. We're now on board. Yep. Welcome. Welcome to the community of people that care about press freedom. But you have to acknowledge that you were missing on some pretty big ones. That's right. When Wiley Dardley is writing think pieces about how important press freedom is, you know that things have changed. Uh, I've got another one actually for you here. So Anthony Albanese is now talking, like all of Labor is up in arms about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just want to bring people back to Anthony Albanese's uh, statement on the Public Interest Media Advocate Bill 2013. Not the, not the sexiest name for a bill in the history of the world, but it is important. This is research. This yeah. Is oh, um, research. This is definitely uh, researching something that someone else posted on Twitter. But... It's research nonetheless. Uh, so Anthony Albanese introduced this bill, uh, say, which was basically going to bring in, I'll get the words right. So the advocate will be the decision maker in relation to public interest tests that applies to transactions involving nationally significant media, news media entry. So mm-hmm. basically a guy that can oversee whether or not something is in the national interest. Well, Anthony Albanese, okay with that back then. And now it's like, well, we need to talk about press freedom. Who can? Who is to say what is in the national interest? Whomst. Whomst is to say. So, yeah, like, again, welcome to the community of people that care about press freedom. Yep. But don't for a second think that we forgot where you were on some other big ones. That's right. Tim Andrews of the Australian Taxpayers Alliance had a good post on Facebook, which I'll, which I'll read out. He says, what's this? Libertarians predicted something would happen, warn the media, and the media refused to believe them. Yeah. And are now shocked that the thing we warned you would come about in a f- 
did in fact come about. I'm shocked. This has never happened before. There's no precedence for this whatsoever. All right. So sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, but it's still wit. Hey, don't insult him, Andrews. You have no idea how many good interviews we got from that conference. Uh, and the ATA do some really great work. All right, uh, Pete, let us talk probably the big story internationally, the Hong Kong protests. Yep, no worries. Let me just scroll down. to. Um, I thought I was done with the laptop forever, but it's back. Scroll up, actually. So, organisers said more than a million people have marched against proposed... Ex- I, I enjoyed that 10 seconds of Pete wrestling with technology <laughs> on the Young IPA podcast. I almost did a control left Hong Kong, but I, <laughs> I thought I'd just back myself on the page up, page down, and I was wrong to do that. Uh, so, more than a million people marched against a proposed extradition bill which would allow suspected criminals in Hong Kong to be sent to mainland China for trial. The, the protest brought central Hong Kong to a standstill, as you could possibly be imagine. Like, yeah, a million people would be a bit of a traffic hazard. Look, they're very good at organising things over there, but they're not that good. Uh, at the end, uh, it erupted into clashes between demonstrators and police. What what they're sort of uh, protesting about is uh, an extradition bill which would allow Hong Kong citizens to be extradited for China. Obviously, China has a deeply flawed justice system in the views of many, including many people who live in Hong Kong, and that the real concern is the political and religious criminals would be targeted by China. Which they will. Yeah, yeah, which they absolutely yeah, will. Good point they made. So supporters of the bill say safeguards are in place to prevent that from happening. But yeah, right. Obviously, the fear with Hong Kong when they rejoined China was that stuff like this would eventually happen. China wouldn't be happy just to sit there and go, no, you guys keep going as usual. It has happened now. Uh, back in 2018, in August, we interviewed Aaron Kwong from the Chinese University of Hong Kong. who was telling us how Hong Kong's no longer the free market uh, powerhouse it used to be. So I reckon, you know, knowing Aaron, he was probably front and centre yeah, leading the people. When things I'd, I'd went pear towards the end. So. I'd, I'd follow Aaron into combat. I don't know about you. Yeah, big hello to Aaron if he's listening. Uh, yeah, so that's the thing. Like, uh, I mean, we had so many protests in Australia recently, the climate march and all the students oh. march and stuff. Yep. Uh, not exactly a million people. No. no. Well, definitely not. Definitely not a million people. So yeah. that, like, that's, that's, you know, what is a... You think that's a protest? This is a protest. Uh, like, yeah. That is a Crocodile protest. Yeah, that's right. That's what I was going for. Uh, Look, that's a big story and it's unfolding. Yeah. uh, I've got another story. This isn't a big story. It should be, though. So, Pete and I can sound a little jaded on this show. Speak for yourself, mate. Uh, (laughs) uh, But the world is getting a better place. And there was a really cool report I saw that shows just that. So, it's called the Simon Abundance Index. Who's Simon? (laughs) It's just a man with a lot of abundance. Sorry. uh, Simon Abundance Index is... The idea is, like, you know, you've got a lot of people who say... Overpopulation is a problem. Mm. It's going to drain all the world's resources. We're not going to have be able to buy anything. We're not going to have, be able to uh, use land that's out there to grow resources. Yep. And this one just shows that it's wrong. So it measures the affordability of things over since ni- from 1980 to uh, 2017. Basically, everything has become more abundant, and it's much easier to afford any of these things. So between 1980 and 2018, the average time price for uh, like. Uh, basic commodities fell by 72.3%, which basically means that it, uh, if you, you can earn enough money to buy one unit... Uh, sorry, well, what it took you three <laughs> three units, and basically what it took you three hours to work for to buy in yeah. 1980, it now takes you one hour. That's so right. everything is getting a lot cheaper. Everything is getting a lot more affordable. The world is becoming a better place. That's right. Look, and, and as you sort of alluded to at the start, our default position is things are getting better. Yeah. And this is a great example of that. Um the earth is 518% more abundant in 2018 than it was in 1980. What these guys measured was things like energy, food, materials and metals, things like that. And it found that we, uh, they've become more abundant because human beings become more uh, ingenious and they find ways to combine different products to uh, create new products. And it means that, uh, look, the world is becoming a better place. And all these things that we tell 
children about, you know, the world's you – know, we're going to run out of resources, we're going to run out of this and that is untrue. This is what yeah. we should be telling young kids. Be optimistic about the future. Yeah, exactly. And also, like, uh, have you read a single book right, recently? Like, no. Vertical – no, well, not you personally. <laughs> but it's like, uh, you know, uh, vertical farming, GMO crops. Yeah. We're finding ways to get more, like, products out mm. of smaller areas of – Land. That's right. It's become, and then the stuff that we don't land, we don't need anymore, becomes native vegetation. Yeah, it becomes the day tree rainforest. I, yeah. I, part of my PhD, James. Ooh. I have. How's uh, that going? It's going really well. I've read about in Iowa, there's more hogs in Iowa hog farms. There's like two thousand hogs per farm or per per, per unit of farm. Yeah. And in the 1930s, it was like eighty. Wow. So this hog does, research. That's probably in the probably in Simon's Mundix. Who is who's Simon? <laughs> we don't know. Hey, look, we're gonna get him on the show. Uh, now uh, you are going to talk to us about uh, Zali Stegel, or a man yeah. related to, not related to. I'll tell the story. Just, you tell the story. <laughs> so I actually I don't lab- want to get in legal trouble. I actually labelled this the corkscrew story, but oh, okay. a senior partner partner in global tax firm KPMG has pleaded guilty to stabbing one of Tony Abbott's campaign workers with a corkscrew on the eve of the federal election. He poked 31-year-old Jonathan Malota with the corkscrew after threatening teenager Rafe Harrison Money uh, Murray, who's 18 years old, as they were putting up election posters outside of primary school. Police said this guy, uh, whose name is Savros Economides, uh, yep. attacked the men, both volunteers, about 8pm. Uh, before tearing down the posters and running away from the school. So they were putting up Tony Abbott posters. He was a Stegall supporter yep. and ripped them down. Now, Zali Stegall says that he's not connected with the campaign and maybe he's not, or he's not, um, but he's a campaign uh, supporter. Anyway, the injured man was treated by paramedics but, but, did, but did not need hospitalisation. The reason I bring this up is because, you know, I mean, Saturday night, people battle each other all the time. But if this <laughs> was... Corkscrews, mate. Yeah, I know, but like, you know, fights happen. But the point is, if this was a Tony Abbott supporter... Yeah. Doing that to uh, one of her supporters. Yes. That we would have been talking about this for weeks. Yeah. Yet no one has mentioned it at all. No. Apart from the Daily Telegraph. Apart from the Daily Telegraph. Highly <laughs> yeah. selling newspaper. Apart yeah. from them. Yeah. And us. And I maybe have two a few other places. I have two things. One, in the opening paragraph, of, uh, when you were reading out, mm. the first paragraph said stabbed, and the next paragraph it becomes poked. It, it did. Which I, one is it? I noticed that, but then it said he was treated by paramedics. Yeah. So it was bad enough to be, have to be treated. All right. Well, I, I just want to get. I want to really un- stabs are different I things. Really, I get that. I really want to unpack what the word poked was. But second, like, I come to a thing where. The second you look at yourself and you've just poked slash stabbed someone with a corkscrew yeah. and you're taking it back and you're like, maybe I'm the bad guy. Yeah. Here. Well, he ran off straight away. Yeah, he ran, well, I think so. It must have been like, well, that got out of hand. Yeah, yeah. That, that was not my best moment. Yeah, and I'll take your point that moment where you've just done something and you yeah. went, no, no. That, that was- <laughs> we were talking about the economy. We're talking about different approaches to climate yeah. action and suddenly I got a corkscrew Can I have out. some posters? I might spice. have gone too far. That's exactly right. And I think, look, the other thing about it's this- exchange literature- not corkscrews. That's right. Yeah. Let's have a, a robust discussion. But the other thing about this is, so look, we've just seen a bloke sacked for quoting the Bible on his Instagram. Big corporate sack people for all sorts of stuff. Yeah. This guy has pleaded guilty, by the way. Yes. So like they haven't gone through the whole process, but he has pleaded guilty. How, how has he not been sacked yet? Well, oh, I don't know. KPMG. I'm not, I'm, I'm, an, I'm not actually a senior partner at KPMG. Okay. Well, KPMG, call Burjo and explain why that's happened. And yeah. we'll, we'll... 1-800-BURJO. That's a direct line. One eight hundred Virgo. All right. What you would find on that line, I don't want to contemplate. Uh, cool. Virgo, you're really attacking when he's without a mic. All right. Uh, <laughs> First show. All right. Baptism of fire, Virgo. Get used to it. Uh, so, last story I want to talk about. So, this one came out in the Australian Today, and it's looking at tourism to the Great Barrier Reef, which yep. is something that a lot of people rely quite heavily on. Mm. Is tourism money coming in from the Great Barrier Reef, and it is. 
falling. And it's mostly a result of green activists saying that the reef is dead and, you know, Al Gore and Barack Obama not exactly helping out too much with recent statements they've made. And it this is interesting. So a few of the stats here. So um, Great Barrier Reef, it's ba- Queensland tourism industry is basically at a near recession. Cafe Pacific recently announced it would drop its direct flights from Hong Kong to Cairns. Mm. Uh, and Coral Expeditions, operating luxury cruise boats, their passenger numbers to the reef have dropped 15% in the last 12 months. Uh, a UBS report shows that uh, Queensland was the second most popular destination for Chinese tourists It is in April last year and it is now uh, six, uh, fourth, six months later. And they have a lot of tourists, China. They do. Um, they do have a lot of tourists. And the also when I mentioned the Hong Kong tourists, like they are a lot, when they're not protesting, they're coming through the Great Barrier Reef. That's how they wind down. Uh, <laughs> hard days protesting. Yeah. Anyway, so the point is like there's a whole lot of tourism that's no longer happening and it's because of the green activist kind of thing, which brings up the sideways issue of when Peter Ridd says, hang on, the Great Barrier Reef isn't doing as badly as we thought, Mm. surely the idea should be, okay, well, let's unpack that because that would be huge news to our economy if it isn't as bad as we thought. That's the idea that we can start pumping out there. But no, we've got to remove him from his role in a university. Well, that's right. Look, he's sort of speaking something that a lot of people think and and we all know what happened to him. My question is, when's Obama going to come? Okay, he said it was going to die. He said once he's got out of the US presidency, he's going to take the kids down to the Great Barrier Reef. He hasn't done that yet. Obama, you can stay at my joint. It's a long way from the reef. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that. Can. Don't know if there's an overnight trip. I don't know if Cathay Pacific are running a direct light from Pete's house to the Great Barrier Reef. I'll speak to Straub. He'll be fine with it. No, but look, this and and the other thing. So that Cathay Pacific thing you mentioned that that's been going for like 25 years. So it's not like a new thing that's come up and failed. It's been going for ages. I think it's in that story you sent me about this. Um, I think it's deeply ironic that they have environmental groups coming out now and actually saying um, our activism has been unimaginably successful but it's not dead yet so please come back and look at it yeah so <laughs> and then once we you come back we'll start saying it's dead again because there's too many tourists and the cycle will well that's the so. other thing i mean there's some environmental groups that are probably like oh no tourism good yeah i don't like tourism i don't want anyone to see the reef except yes. for me <laughs> i'm like publicly funded research grant yeah. Uh, all right. So let's get through some of the things that the IPA has been doing recently. A lot of reports have just come out. So we had one today from Kurt Wallace, friend of the show, friend of Hey, What Did I Miss? Make yep. sure you're signing up for that as well. Uh, looking at regulatory dark matter, which sounds very sinister. Very Kurt. Yeah. Uh, so base, So the idea being there's regulations that get passed by governments and they become bills and they're quite transparent and accessible and you can, you know, when a government gets voted in or out, those regulations can also mm. get removed and uh, implemented. But the idea is that sometimes uh, regulatory actions are taken by departments and agencies that aren't certain, uh, aren't subject to as much scrutiny as governments. So yeah. they get handed off to a body, the body makes regulations and these regulations just stay there forever. And when they stay there forever... They multiply, <laughs> like, right. like bacteria. Uh, so five agencies in the finance and banking sectors have piled on 75,976 pages of regulatory dark matter uh, just in those five, like just in the finance and banking sectors. So that, that's, that page count is more than 52 times larger than Tolstoy's War and Peace. Okay. So you can either read all these or read Tolstoy's War and Peace 52 times in a row. Pete, yep. which one are you choosing? Um, the first the one. Cricket. Uh, and eight times larger than the legislation passed by Parliament. Uh, granting power to these agencies. So there's like all these regulations that don't get debated or discussed or voted on and they're just sitting there. Yep. So if you want to read more about that, I mean, that's going to kill small businesses that are trying to get bigger because, you know, a lot of those, as we've talked about with occupational licensing, there's always 
big industries they push for some of these regulations to stop smaller businesses taking over from them because it's that harder sorry it's that much harder to compete with so if you're interested in that area make sure you're going over to ipa.org.au and reading all of Kurt's great work about it mm-hmm. you've also got uh, Andrew Bushnell talking about uh, criminal justice so and the idea of the incarceration rate so the incarceration rate in Australia has increased by 30% uh, over the past decade from 167 prisoners per 100,000 adults in 2017 to oh, sorry uh, from uh Last decade was 167 to 217 prisoners per 100,000 adults. Now, taxpayers now spend $4.4 billion on corrective services, most of which goes towards incarceration. And it's one of those interesting ones because it's so hard to press back against because no politician wants to be seen as being soft on crime. Mm-hmm. So, or, like, whenever it's like, oh, we're going to be tougher, we're going to be tougher, we're going to be tougher. And then all of this money starts getting into incarceration and there's not a whole lot of talk about whether or not it's actually working, but certainly politicians get to look like they're tough on crime. That's right. That's one of the things Bushnell talks about a lot. Well, I should say Andrew Bushnell. Yes. But, um, yeah. Okay, and then over at ipa.org.au as well, you can also see Matthew Lesh in Spiked, adjunct fellow Matthew Lesh, friend of the show as well, mm. talking about the raids on the ABC. If you want to know more about that, you've got John Roscombe talking about uh, businesses, talking too much about what matters to inner city people rather than Australians as a whole, and all the other stuff we do as well. Sorry, guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, available on every single podcast platform as is looking forward. All of them. <laughs> Download on all of them. Uh, and if you are listening through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, make sure you're leaving us that five-star review. It really helps us out with bringing new people to the show. And uh, yeah, if you aren't a member of the IPA, you've heard what we talk about and you want to become a member, go to ipa.org.au slash join. You can sign up for any number of those packages. They're really easy to do. Mark, we're going to start getting you to do these membership things because I've been out of breath for two and a half minutes. It has just been me. <laughs> Uh, and if you are already a member of the IPA, you can also go there to donate to the IPA. Uh, tax season's coming up and you can make some tax-deductible donations. Tax season's tax coming season up. Tax coming up. My favourite time of year. Um, the bells are whistling. Tax season's coming up. Make, you can make a non-tax... Oh, sorry. You can make a tax-deductible donation. Yeah, that's a crucial distinction. <laughs> crucial distinction. I'm no tax lawyer. Yeah. Look, uh, I didn't do a single bit of economics. Anyway, tax-deductible donation to the IPA at that, web, at that website. So go there if you want to donate. All right. Uh, let's go to those interviews now. Cool. Okay, now sitting here with Daisy Cousins, one of Sky News' biggest celebrities at the moment, I'd say. So, uh, yeah, you, I mean, you are one of the big faces of Sky News After Dark. So what is it like being in the vast right-wing conspiracy? Oh, it's great fun. It's, it's, it's great fun. I, I love being kind of sort of tarred by this left-wing brush of being in this sort of vast after dark sort of, you know, underworld of, of terrible right-wing commentary and how evil they all are. And I, I absolutely relish that. Um, no, it's great fun. But no, in, on, in all honesty, though, I mean, it's some terrific commentary um, on, on Sky after sort of five or six. And it's really, it's the only place in Australia that you'll actually get really sensible, analytical right-wing commentary because the mainstream media is so hopelessly um, left-wing even though they pretend they're not. But if you want people who are like, unashamedly conservative and, and put their stake in the ground, like, you know, Paul Murray and obviously Andrew Bolt and Peter Credler and, and all of that lot, um, I think it's really refreshing and it's really important. Um, and I think one of the reasons that the left kind of gets so antsy about, you know, so-called sky after dark is because they know that it's effective. Um, they know that it, it's really um, articulate and it, there's nothing extremist about it. So, of course, they try to paint it that way. And because they can't stand any opposition, particularly effective opposition, um, they just they want to tear it down. Um, but I have I have a really good time. And like I, I used to function sort of in, in the theatre industry, like back when I was I don't do that anymore. I moved into writing and I was like there 
people in the musical theatre industry are the worst regressive leftists you can possibly... They are, they are like every stereotype of social justice warriors plus huge egos um, and largely dysfunctional, so it's the worst. Um, so I was in a bubble where nobody agreed with me on anything and if I opened my mouth and said anything then I would get absolutely well you know what they do they just they rip you to shreds and they won't be friends and so I eventually just decided well there's no point in me talking I just won't talk um so being like, having the wonderful opportunity which your dad actually um gate was the first one on sky to give me a regular spot um, and I'm very grateful to him for that. Um, it's wonderful to be with um, a group of people who we all have differing opinions, but we all fall under the same kind of bracket of values. Um, and it, it's so refreshing. And, you know, it, it's great It's great to debate people, and I like doing that. But it's nice to be able to discuss rather than just screaming on Q&A and talking all over each other. So I think Sky News After Dark is actually really, really important for democracy. Um, and anyone who is potentially an advertiser of Sky listening to this, please don't believe Twitter because there are hardly any of them and um, they don't speak for the majority of people. Yeah, it's going to be tough to lose the market of those eight people that keep tweeting about it. So, you mm -hmm. know, the advertisers can incur a loss, yeah, but yeah, I think they'll manage. Exactly. Uh, so what was the transition like for you going from the theatre to Sky News? Like, were, were you, once you left the theatre, were you like, I want to get into political commentary, I want to start saying these things? This was really something I completely fell into, um, totally. It's like when, it, it's weird, like how if you just let, fate kind of lead you it'll often kind of work out like when I was um acting there's really no work in Australia there's like two percent of actors are employed there's no money in it you all everyone has to work a day job and some some actors are fine with that they're fine with that but I wasn't fine with it um I have this sort of drive to do probably a lot of things that are way above my pay levels you know what I mean like really really big big things and I wasn't able to do that um because when you're in the theatre, you, you rely 110% on other people giving you jobs. You can't sort of generate your own stuff. But I always loved um, writing. So I had this sort of existential crisis when I was like 25. And whenever I'm sort of in a rut, I educate myself. That's the best thing to do. So I did a master's of creative writing at Sydney Uni and I loved it. And I moved into writing articles and I started writing for a women's magazine, which was just wasn't like militant femme. It was just kind of women's lifestyle. Touch of the femme, but you know, <laughs> not too bad. Um, but a friend of mine said, Daisy, would you, he knew all my views, and he's a big lefty, but he said to me, look, would you like to write for Quadrant Magazine, you know, which is a very well-renowned conservative publication. I said, well, I'd, I'd love to. So I did, and then I was introduced through Quadrant to Rowan Dean, editor of The Spectator, and we had a chat, and he said, yeah, sure, send me anything. I started writing for The Spectator. And so I literally, just by sort of force of chances and people, I fell into this, and I right-wing commentary just written thing and I got very good feedback from it from from a lot of people they're like you've got a great I was like oh that's so encouraging and um I fell into the television um via the spectator um the producers of um counterpoint radio which is Tom Switzer's program read an article that I wrote on millennials and said would you like to come and do an interview on the radio about this article and I did and the producers of Q&A heard it and they were looking for new voices so they invited me on Q&A um, which was really being thrown in the deep end as my first ever panel topic. And it was just after Trump had won. So that's such a hostile climate, you can imagine, particularly in Melbourne. Um, and yeah, that was how I got my start. And other, I must have done okay because, um, you know, other producers from all sorts of networks um, kept bringing me and I did the project, which was awful. Um, <laughs> which tell that story. <laughs> it was awful. Oh, do you want me to tell no, that story? No, no. Oh, my God. Um, well... 
you know on the project how they have those like 10 minute segments that are generally with someone streamed in that are generally people that Waleed Ali disagrees with um they're all pre-recorded none of those are live but he doesn't own that he pretends that they're live so he has this really this reputation of being this like amazing debater and I'm like uh, no, he pre-records the whole thing, then someone edits it to make him look good. And so I went in um, to do th- to do this interview. They asked me to do it on Trump's press one, a press com- conference that Trump did where he was just being funny, but everyone's like, oh, my God, it's chaos in the White House. And I'm like, no, he's just being funny. Shut up. Um, but they asked me to do that, and um, they, they hit me with this information about 45 minutes before um, that I hadn't been told to prep for. Like literally I was on the tram, um, obviously in Sydney and they rang me and said, Oh, you, you ready to do this? I said, yeah. And they're like, Oh, we're also going to talk about this. You okay to talk about that? And I'm like, uh, yeah, sh- sure. And it was like vaguely related to the topic, but I was like messaging dad going, dad, can you, what can you tell me about, about this thing? And cause dad's quite politically engaged. So it's my mum and he's sending me articles, but I'm freaking. Um, and I got there and I, I knew that, um, they were not on side. Well, well, the others are kind of, the other commentators on the project, like, you know, Carrie, Bickmore and stuff, they're kind of not that political. They sit there through the discussions, but they're really more kind of lifestyle. It's only really will lead. Yeah, I don't think Peter Helly is one of our leading political minds in the country. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Either. They're just happy to sit and listen. Because Waleed hates Trump, like... We started off fine, but then he kept hitting me with these questions and interrupting me, which had nothing to do with um, what I had been told to prep for. And um, Rowan Dean had advised me beforehand because um, we had he was like a mentor to me. He's, he's amazing. And he said, Daisy, don't let them make you angry because that's what they will try to do. So I was calm, but I was getting progressively more and more agitated. And eventually he just like was like, oh, well, there's this, 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 this. And I'm thinking, you haven't told me to prep for this. There's a completely uncalled comment what you said was just actually stupid I could debunk it if I wanted but it would take 10 minutes so I just went you know what Waleed you're probably right okay about whatever but I'm sorry but I don't have all the answers and I thought to myself oh my god they're gonna put that on tv and I'm gonna look like a horrible right-wing person but they actually edited it to make me look vaguely good um, I was like, wow, I must have charmed someone in the editing department. But I think, um, like, in retrospect, um, it was probably because no one knew who I was at that point. And so that it actually would not have served them to make this 20-something-year-old girl look like she was getting hammered by Walid Ali because people would have just called him a misogynist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was lucky. But now I think if I went on the project, it'd be, like, a, a totally different thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so anyone who thinks Walid is a good debater, he is not. He pre-records all of them. It's like cheating on a test. All right, you heard it there. All right, uh, the other part of your career I want to talk about is like you recently passed 90,000 subscribers on YouTube, 100,000 with Insight. Uh, this is something that there's not a whole lot of Australian faces on, especially like political YouTube. So like what do you put your success down to on there? And like how to, I'm sure we've got listeners out there who've got their own YouTube accounts that are trying to get there. What would you tell them? Uh, look, you've just you've just got to persevere. And that's sort of cliched advice, but it's really true. I mean, I got into the YouTube because... Um, even as a like a television commentator, like there's no money in TV. So not not when you first start out. And um, my my wonderful boyfriend, um, Callum Thwaites, um, is like the king of the internet. Like he's really internet, and he knows YouTube. And he kept saying to me, "You do all this stuff on TV. You have to get onto YouTube. You have a YouTube account. You have one video up there from ages ago. Get you, you've got to start creating content." Um, and so eventually, I got around to it. Um, and I got, you know, reasonably good feedback, but you have, you just have to put in the slog because in order to actually get a YouTube channel monetized, because ultimately, um, in order to be able to do it, 
without having to work a day job and stuff you want your channel monetized and that's not like oh i'm only doing it for the money it's just a practical thing but if because if you're not monetizing your work you have to go work retail and that detracts from your work because you don't have enough time so i was desperate to be able to make a living just doing what i'm doing so i could focus all of my attention into it and I'm very fortunate to be able to do that now but I certainly couldn't at the time when I started because you have to get um over a thousand subscribers and four thousand watch hours and when you have which isn't a lot of watch hours when you've got a big channel but when you've got hardly any subs it seems like a gargantuan thing and it took me like several months to actually do it and I was lucky like I came in already with a following so I could put it on my Facebook and Twitter and go hey guys so I could I brought a few followers over, not that many, but enough to get me over the thousand. Um, but you, it it can be so disheartening, um, particularly when you're first starting off and you don't have the facilities. You know, like I I started doing videos in my living room with a webcam, and um, you know it can be really hard to motivate yourself to keep going because it takes hours and hours and hours and hours, and it takes me two days to make a video because um, I do all the editing myself and of course you're doing it all yourself because you don't have money to pay for an editor and um, it's hard and yeah. I nearly gave up um, a couple of times but um, I kept going but obviously I had, I had a lot of support from my parents and my boyfriend but I kept going because I realized I actually really enjoy this I really I thought this is I actually enjoy this more than I've enjoyed anything that I do because it combines everything that I love to do um, so anyone who's trying that, I would just say you just have to keep up with the slog and remember that you have chosen to do this uh, because hopefully you enjoy it. So if you're enjoying it, yes, it's disheartening, but just remember how much you enjoy it and think of the potential with persistence of growth and eventually that's how you'll get over the line. That's how I got out over the line. Yeah, so now you've got a, in a position to get a good editor. Have you thought about using Wally Daly's editor? I mean, even you're <laughs> saying he's one of the best in the business. Well, apparently, because he made me look fabulous, well, at least as good as I could look after Walid Ali scowling at me for, for like eight minutes and then only using four minutes of footage. But um, no, no, no. Look, I actually really love editing, editing the videos. That's my favorite part because I write the transcript and that's usually about like 16 to 1800 words. So it's like an essay that I, a short essay that I write. And that takes a lot of brain power because I do a huge amount of research. You have to, you can't get away with not having the sources there. And it takes a long time. And then filming it can be really frustrating because like my little filming room is just a sunroom we have in our house and the windows are all like slats so all the background noise comes in. There's all the aeroplanes flying over. So that can take a while. But when I've done all of that, I'm like, okay, I can sit there in my tracksuit pants and I get my computer and I YouTube these fun clips to put in and I, I put it all together. Um, I, I love doing the editing. So I still, I still don't have enough money to actually pay someone like a salary to do that, not by a long shot. But even if I did, I probably wouldn't because I just I really like it it's good fun i'm very jealous i edit this podcast it's the least favorite thing i do I'm, all i hear is the ums and ahs and just like come on mate uh anyway so another part i want to talk to you about is so you got this online uh presence you know you're big on youtube big on twitter and no one cops it harder from trolls i reckon in media right now than you and like there's this idea that like all trolls on the internet are just right-wing trolls trying to bring people down but like you know, you cop it more than most. Mm. So why don't people talk about left-wing trolls more? Because I think it's because it's usually um, lefties talking about trolls. So like, oh, my God, all these misogynists are on the internet too, yelling at me. And I'm like, okay, um, sorry, but you can't talk. And because it's usually feminists doing it. Feminists, a side note, are obsessed with online misogyny. 
They're the most narcissistic people ever because all they do is like screenshot the abuse they get on emails and like put it on Twitter and go, see what people say to me and about, it's like nobody cares. Stop. But they're obsessed with online misogyny. Um, and you never really hear conservative women, I mean, sometimes we do if it's outrageous, but like, you know, Sydney Watson and Rita and Miranda, like we don't relentlessly screenshot abuse we get and put it on the internet. Um, but it's because it's usually feminists um, talking about it and because it's their, their big shtick, they're like, oh, there's, they make out that all trolls are straight white men um, who live in, in, in basements and they yeah. say... they Incels. In, yeah. Incels, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they go on and on and on. Uh, and there's one feminist in particular who does this who shall remain nameless, but anyone who knows me can probably guess who this is. Um, her name rhymes with Lemontine. Um, but she, that could be anyone. That could be anyone, yes. But she and her contingent, like, and I've heard, her, I've heard them say this on TV, oh, I hate the fact that young women get abused on the internet and all this misogynistic stuff. And I'm like, hang on a minute... You and your friends are the chief perpetrators of abuse of young women on the internet if they if they disagree with you. And the kind of stuff I have heard coming from feminists, like this particular feminist called me a boy suck at one point, which is a, has an, an, an implication which I'm sure you can pick up. Yeah, you don't need a diagram for that one. I wheeze it, yeah, and it was, uh, it was absolute, like she, re- like, ravaged my integrity by like implying that I was only doing what I was doing for money because I used to write for a women's magazine which was not a feminist magazine it was a lifestyle magazine and I had some more moderate views back then than I do now um but the amount of abuse that conservative women probably is probably I remember Milo arguing for this he said that he thinks the people the conservatives that cop it worst on the internet are conservative women because they get it all from feminists like Ann Coulter probably gets the worst abuse you can possibly imagine and probably I'd say Kellyanne Conway as well and a lot of it, like something like 40% of online misogyny actually comes from other women. Like there's a Demos study that found that and there's a couple of others as well. It's women ragging on other women. Um, so like, and this stuff is appalling, but the reason it doesn't get mentioned is because one, there aren't as many conservative chicks talking about it. Um, and two, it's because the problem with the regressive left and femi- like militant feminists is that they are so, so sure that they are correct and that what they are doing is morally right, that anything they say is totally justified because the people they're saying it to are evil people and gender traitors who deserve to be punished for straying from the party line. And that's the the only reason I can think of. So whenever I see them saying, oh, online misogyny is such a terrible thing, I'm like, will you shut up? You, yeah. s- you filthy hypocrite, shut up. <laughs> Funny. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's the thing. It's just like uh, you, Sydney reader. They don't. You don't fit the narrative no. of what they put together. So you're like the enemy in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And um, the reason they hate myself and Sydney, um, especially and probably especially me, is like I ragingly flaunt my femininity. Um, like I, I wear the I, I wear the, the frills and the lace and the flowers and so I do it very deliberately because I know it annoys them. But also that's that's how I like to dress. Like I'm a very feminine. I've always been really girly. Um, and when I got into the public eye and I'm like, I can bring this, you know, this start, these things I like to dress and maybe sort of change up the look of um, TV a bit. Um, but feminists hate femininity because they have this, I think two reasons, they have this vague sort of concept that it was co-opted by the patriarchy in an attempt to control women in the second wave, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, but also a lot of militant feminists are not feminine. 
Um, they're quite masculine. They're usually not, a lot of them are not that attractive. And I don't say that in a bad way. No, I, it's not a bad thing. It's nothing wrong with not being conventionally attractive. But Thank goodness. They, <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's because they, that makes them insecure about themselves. So they're drawn to a group of women who are also not conventionally beautiful um, and often quite masculine and rebelling against that. So they see someone like me and like, I mean, Sydney as well, who's very, very pretty and also always looks lovely and in her videos as well, um, relentlessly um, capitalising on the way we look um, and also going against that, oh, femininity is, is sort of weak, you know, and the, the heads explode. Like they, they cannot stand it. And that's one of the reasons they particularly hate me. And Rita... I think gets a lot of crap because she's um, Iranian. She's you know she's not she's not white and she's a woman and she's a conservative and like that's intersectionality for them that's just gone nuts like off the wall. So yeah, it's, it's a few reasons, but I think they're some of the main ones. All right, cool. We come to the end of the interview, so I have to ask who is the better interviewer in my family? I mean, now you've had experience of both. <laughs> oh, you know, I I I, I couldn't possibly. I would. I couldn't possibly say. I would say um, that you are both equal but different. Mm. How's that for a good answer? Well, we'll right see answer? what a Wally Dally's editor can come <laughs> up with. Uh, but yeah, anyway. So Daisy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Okay, we are now joined once again by friend of the show, Steve Baxter. So welcome back on to the Young IPA podcast. No, g'day, mate. Thanks for thanks for having me. Okay, so we are coming to you live from the VIP room at the ALS Freedman Conference. I'm feeling very cool getting led into a VIP room, not something I'm usually uh, loud into. So we're about four days after, five days after the victory of Scott Morrison, which came out of absolutely nowhere. So what were your reactions to it and what does this mean for the future of business in Australia? Just to let you know, it's not exactly a salubrious VIP room. It's a pretty boring part of UTS here in Sydney, right? But um, it's all good. Um, so look, it was an amazing weekend. I sat up on the Saturday night, fully expecting to, to turn the TV off at eight o'clock with a bit of a bit of an acidy taste in my mouth. And, uh, and I think as soon as I saw the blood rush out of Richo's face, I knew there was something on. So um, then Richard Marle shut up. I didn't say much for the rest of the night. It was it was bloody awesome. So overall, unexpected. I didn't expect it. I've been saying for some time that you know um, that we have to prepare for Prime Minister Shorten. Um, and still, it's even surreal to say that out loud. Thank God it didn't happen. Um, they had it coming. They put their policies out there. They, they dared people to vote against them, and, and people followed through. Um, from up Queensland way, there's obviously was a quite a large swing in Queensland with respect to that election. Um, but when you look at the way that uh, the policies that were going to impact, and you look at the, the absolute two-faced nature of their uh, of their approach to the mining sector, um, not unexpected at all. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um what does it mean for the future of energy policy in Australia? Because uh, that's something I know you care a lot about. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm here today with my starter dining t-shirt on, which is... Yeah, I had a few questions about that later on. <laughs> um, and I don't really care about it. I don't care if it's a coal mine. I don't care if it's... I don't really care what generates my power. I, I, I want it cheap and reliable. I really do. So I'm, I'm not a fan of any one technology. But I do know that it, it, is that new technology displaces old technology when it's better. And new technology can't be better when it's ad hoc and random, which is what we currently have to, re to replace the current baseload generation. And that's, that's a huge part of the problem. I'm currently in some Facebook stoush with someone, actually a bloke I know, um, out of South Australia, after one of bloody Sarah Hanson Young's comment about Queensland can keep your coal, we've got our beautiful, we've got our beautiful wind and solar. I'm like, yeah, and that big extension cord into Victoria's coal plants, right? <laughs> Let's not talk about that one and all your diesel gensets. And, and, and he makes the point that it's not wind that's made... Um, Energy in South Australia are expensive, but and it is right. Uh, and, but it, it, it is the lack of base fire, excuse me, base load 
generation of some sort. I, said, I, don't, I don't care where it comes from. Um, and, if, and if wind and solar could actually produce that, I wouldn't care either. Um, once again, we've got to be prepared to pay for it. So, um, so what does it mean for the future of, of, of energy in Australia? Look, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, you know, ultimately, there's, there's probably a, a 40-year transition with the current sort of, sort of uh, um, coal mix in, in the world anyway. That technology will come along. It's inevitable. So it, what happens in the meantime? Uh, how big an impact does the, the, the supposed climate play uh, in all of this? So, um, you know, if, if, we, if it was an actual climate emergency, like all these left wally uh, outlets are talking about, we'd just go, we'd actually fix it and go, nuke. If, if, if it was actually a climate emergency, we wouldn't, you know, the, the world's reaction to someone turning on a coal-fired power plant would be a cruise missile. Um, it's, it's not that bad. They're, they're, they're standing up hundreds, if not close to a thousand of these things in Southeast Asia and Germany and Japan and other places. It's, it's actually not that bad. Let's get real. Yeah, you've touched on something that I find really interesting, which is the reaction of the business community in Australia to the climate issue, uh, or to the energy issue, really, which is, so you you go, it needs to be cheap, it needs to be affordable, it needs to be reliable, this is something that people need to buy, but we don't hear anything from other business leaders about this. They're all, you know, running after the government subsidies for getting into renewable energy. So do you reckon the business community needs to stand up a bit more to protect these ideas? Yeah, I think they do. One thing that comes out of the election, I hope that there is a, a bit more, um, a bit more courage out there to actually talk openly on, on all topics, because I, I think that there's been not just a repudiation of some of the climate policies and especially the, 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 the just the disastrous tax policies, um, but also you know let's hope that we can bring back speaking the truth and just just bring bring truth back to a topic. So um, so if, if business is going to speak out on something, it's it, they should be speaking out in their best interests. Um, you know, we you know, what underpins a modern economy is is cheap, reliable power. Um, you just look what's going on in Germany at the moment. And, and the the Das Spiegel or Der Spiegel had that fantastic article. I well, had a really good in-depth article that just detailed how much they've spent and how how far they've gone, which is a long way. But they, they just can't seem to get any further, regardless of how much money they pour on this fire. Absolutely. All right. So I need to talk about the Star Dadani T-shirt that you have on right now in front of me. And I saw a lot of photos of you posted to your Facebook page from the election night where you got the Star Dadani T-shirt on. You were pumping your fist, pretty happy about it. What's been the reaction to this T-shirt? Well, I've had it. I've had it for a long time now. I had it for my birthday, February. So mid-February, I've had this T-shirt. So it's not. It's not just because I won. Just because there was a coalition result in the election, I've had it for a while. Yeah. Uh, I quite enjoy wearing it. I sorry, I should jump in. So basically, everyone would be familiar with the Stop Adani T-shirt. I'm just realising this is an audio podcast, so people can't see the T-shirt. But anyone, everyone's seen the Stop Adani T-shirt. This is now just a green sign saying hashtag Start Adani. Yeah, it, it just says hashtag Start Adani. I have a couple of other shirts on the way. Um, one of those is, uh, uh, it features the black-throated finch. And it, it, it espouses my love. I actually love the black-throated finch because they taste like chicken. So, um, I reckon the old finch will be feeling pretty endangered. Yeah, if anyone doesn't want it to get endangered, it's you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, look, um, um, and so, uh, I've got the point I was making there, but with respect to that, so I've, I've been... My whole yeah. point. What's the reaction been to the T-shirt? Yeah, look, my whole point, when, when you ride on it, I didn't, I didn't actually walk around West End. I rode around, I rode around West End in Brisbane with a Lime scooter with it on, and got some curious looks, that's for sure. Um, look, for the most part, depending where you are, um, you know, in regional Queensland, which I travel to quite a bit, because I care about regional Queensland as opposed to those who profess they care about it, um, uh, it's, it's very warmly received. So I haven't had any really adverse reactions, to be honest. But... Um, and I've got to, I've got to, I've got to re, restate my reasons for wearing this T-shirt is I don't care about that mine. But the reality is it's the most legal, 
project in Australia, it's, it's passed 11 High Court challenges. And if, we care, and if we're in business and we care about the rule of law, which if you're in business, you need to care about the rule of law, politicians should not be stopping this project. That's actually my biggest issue with the entire project. Yeah, fantastic. So going through your Facebook page, I'm seeing a lot of political posts from you recently. So uh, this is where I ask if you want to switch places, you can host a Young IPA podcast if you really want to get involved in politics and then I'll take over your multi-million dollar. <laughs> <laughs> um, Please yeah. say yes. No, no, thanks for that. No, I'll, I'll, I'll consider that. I'll, I'll sit on that. Look, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a Section 44 train wreck, to be honest. I can't stand for federal politics. Ah, so um, Section 44, Part 5, I think it is. Yeah. Apparently literally. that's not a bad issue to keep you out of politics. Like, no. Half the parliament is in the same boat. No, I think so. Well, actually, I think I think forget Section Forty Four, Part Four, which is the citizenship stuff, but Part Five, which is the pecuniary interest stuff, it is so wide. I mean, you literally, if you have a, a share in a business that sells a smarty to a public servant, you're probably in breach of it. I mean, it, it can be read very, very widely. So there's there's a lot of water to flow under that bridge yet. And let's let's hope we don't go through that same 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 trials and debacles. But the, the business community, in, in, in look, I have to admit, you know, I, I get around the startup community. I'm I'm somewhat of a pariah in the startup a pariah in the startup community. Um, had a bit of a Facebook staff with Mike Cannon Brooks, who's obviously very much in the in the renewable energy side. I don't really care. I think that there's, there's a there's a there's a valid opinions on all side. For as much as the, anyone on the left wants to not hear the other side, which is quite disappointing. Um, uh, I think we're all over it. I actually think you know the biggest thing at the election. I think we're just glad there's probably going to be a workable parliament. Which is going to be massive. That's that's huge for business. Yeah, yeah. I guess the Senate seems to be remain, but there does seem to be a majority in the lower house. Uh, I wanted to like we were talking just before we got onto the mics about the reaction from a lot of the left wing about how Queensland needs to be kicked out of Australia as a result of election night. Um, you and I were laughing about that. So where were some of the places you saw that, and what were you, what was your reaction? Well, I was purposely wandering into ABC face, Facebook feeds and stuff, and just rolling hand grenades around, which was hilarious to watch. Um, um, look, you know, and, and, and to me, the actual election was personal. So the capital gains tax changes would have actually seen me making seven people redundant. Uh, literally, they actually would have made the business I do, which is investing in tech startups. Um, it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened straight away because obviously there's a grandfathering provision, but we would have done no new tech investments because on every win, I would have been paying out 57 cents in expenses, the majority of which was tax. Right now, it's only 43 cents. Right, so it's sort of worthwhile doing. Are you going to take half my wins, over half my wins? It's literally, I'll put money in the bank. It, it, and, and, and lots of other investors would have made exactly the same decision. So, so I'm sorry, but screw you for me, it was personal, right? And it was personal for my staff as well. I, I'm the only non-left person in my office too. I employ young people, which means they're mostly all left, unfortunately. Um, so um, the, the, the reactions have just been, the reactions have been bloody disappointing. Jane, Jane Caro just d- deserves no place in, in Australian public life after her comments about truculent turds. That was just disgraceful. Apparently she doesn't want to be part of Australian public life. I saw a lot of I'm going to move to New Zealand kind of stuff. Well, she said, I think she said in one of her tweets she was going to move to New Zealand. And then she wiped it all off as, you know, called, wants to move to New Zealand, called people who voted for the coalition truculent turds. And then, and then basically said, oh, my, my tweets have been, mis, have been misread. And I'm like, going, oh, no, they haven't. It was pretty bloody perfect what they were, actually. So look, they need to get over it. I mean, I, I saw this, I recall um, when, when Brexit occurred, and, and I was bloody surprised about Brexit, to be honest. And... Um, uh, and once again, I, I think Britain will be stronger in the EU, but, but guess what? There's actually no wrong result from an election. There's just a result. The same with Trump. Uh, I think he's a pig of a man, he, probably doing quite well economically. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm not judging on his personal characteristics. And I've got a dog in this fight. I've got three daughters who are US citizens. So, um, so I look at it quite, uh, 
I look at it quite intensely. Um, same here. There's, there's, you know, uh, there's no wrong answer from an election. There's just the answer. The people have spoken. You get on and do business for the next three or four years, whatever it is. Yeah, just going back to the Twitter um, fallout. So this might be gone by the time that this interview goes away, but I d it's definitely up right now. But Margot Kingston, if you know her, has done. She's like a classic Twitter troll lefty kind of thing. But she's done five posts about how she's going to remove Twitter, uh, like almost daily. Like I'm about to delete the app. I'm about to delete the app. Go out and read that. It's funny. Uh, but. Yeah, to bring it back to something you were saying. For your own mental health, get off Twitter. I got off Twitter. I still got an account. My PR people use it. And I push stuff out there. I don't use it. Um, it is it is a, 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 a stinking dumpster fire of lefty swill. It, it really is. And honestly, or, or just stay on Twitter. If you're not a lefty and you're on Twitter, great. You keep talking to yourselves and you'll, you'll, you'll keep getting results like over the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I want to bring it back to what you were saying about how this was personal for you. You would have had to have fired staff members as a result of the tax changes. Now, tax is something that it's pretty hard to get young people to pay attention to. It's just not something they think about. But that's the point. Like, when we talk about corporate tax, it sounds boring, but this is people's jobs at stake. So, how, like, uh, why do... Yeah, exactly. So why do young people need to care about these things? Um, well, you said they don't. You hope the older people are actually more bloody responsible and can actually work it out, right? But obviously, that's not the case. So they, they do need to care about it. Um, we've just come here. We've been at the conference, and the keynote this morning was we here for the keynote. That was actually quite good. It was actually talking to how you actually uh, take a more empathetic stance with your arguments and how you actually don't don't trigger people straight away when you actually start talking about your 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 views and your policies and your politics. So you know, how, how do we tax is a pretty bored, dry, dry topic, um, boring, dry topic. I, I think young people do get it because I, I think. I don't know, my, my feeling is that there was a lot of um, younger people out there who, who might have usually voted left who voted for the coalition because they spoke to their mum and dad and mum and dad were going to be affected by tax changes. I, I really think that's the case. Um, you just can't rip that much tax. Um, so, uh, you know, how do you do that? No, I don't know. I'm, I'm still considering how to do that. I'm not, I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, so I want to change tracks for a little bit. You've recently invested a fair bit in ClipChamp. So do you want to talk about what that project is and why it excited you so much? Yeah, look, we've um, we've been uh, a ClipChamp investor now. I, mean, I broke the news just recently, but we did that mate, that big investment about six months ago. The guys were waiting on some features to come out to maximise the press, which is, you know, that's okay. Um, and we first invested about, oh, golly, about sort of, uh, 14 months before that. So we're, we're, we've invested about a million dollars over that period of time. Um, ClipChamp's an amazing business. The, the founders there, it's a highly technical, they've actually got an awarded, a US granted patent, which, which you know, is, for software is quite surprising. Um, so they're a, uh, they're a tool that allows you to uh, modify and edit a video inside a web browser. You think, well, that's no big deal. But this is not uploading into the cloud. This is actually doing it on your local computer through a web browser, through a very, very tiny piece of code. So it's very efficient. So if you've got your two or three gig GoPro video, you've been out skiing all day, you don't have to upload two or three gig to the cloud and edit it and, you know, backwards and forwards with that, which is quite time consuming. You can literally, uh, right there on the spot, do all the work you need to do. Uh, it's been called Canva for video, which I think is quite, that, that, that'd be nice, considering they just got valued at $3.6 billion, that'd be fantastic. But um, the, the team's fantastic, the growth is off the charts, they've got six and a half million users. Um, we, uh, we, we, we're surrounded by opportunity, um, you know, growing at sort of 15, 20% a month. So um, it's just a bloody brilliant business. Yeah, it sounds really good, because if there's one thing I have as a problem with social media at the moment, it's that there's not enough broadcasting of people's day-to-day -day lives. So I'm glad we can finally get into that space, I guess. Um, not enough broadcast. Yeah, well, at least you can edit it easily before yeah, you broadcast yeah. it outright. So, uh, but no, I have, I have, you know, we, we, I, had a, I go fishing a bit and I go flying around, and I had some mates took some drone footage of my aircraft, and I 
took it down from 700 meg down to sort of 30 meg and posted it up. You know, if, in, in the middle of golf carpentry, you can't do that, right? You can't upload 700 meg. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I'm just getting around. Uh, so I'm last sorry. time we chatted... Um, I'm old, I don't get jokes. <laughs> I'm old, I just don't get jokes. Uh, I don't tell them. Uh, so last time we chatted, uh, you were pretty sceptical about the future of investment and future of tech in Australia. Uh, is that still something you feel? Was I? I'm a tech investor in Australia. I hope I wasn't. No, I'm, I'm, I think I'm realistic. I understand that you know we're a small country of 23 million people, that we don't have a history of doing this, um, let alone doing it well. We're getting better at it. There's a lot, lot of investments flowed in the last couple of years, which has been very, very, uh, very heartening. The super funds have been quite active in that respect, the large super funds. Um, we still don't, I, I think, we're seeing more, but we, we still don't have enough deal flow, so we don't have enough people starting businesses that are investable. Um, and whenever you hear someone in Australia complaining that, that, that they can't get investment, it's like um, if they've spoken to 20 investors, they've got their answer. No one wants to, you know, they're not wrong. Your baby's ugly, sorry, mate, get over it and do something else. So, um, so look, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, somewhat, I'm somewhat bullish. I mean, we're about to launch a, a syndicate investment product through transition level investments. Um, that's going to, you know, we've we got high hopes for that. Um, we're seeing a lot more, a lot more opportunity out there. We, we've only got so much money we can invest each year because it's, it's all our family's money. We don't raise money from external people. So uh, uh, we want to be able to get access to more of these opportunities, essentially. So I'm, I don't know. I'm sceptical about the level of investable things. I'm still sceptical about the level of investable things here in Australia. Right, cool. Okay, so Steve Baxter, hopefully they started. Donnie, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Cheers, mate. Okay, thank you to Daisy Cousins and Steve Baxter for those interviews. Really interesting stuff. Mm. So let us fly through some stories that have made us laugh this week. There's a lot to go through, babe. Yeah, yeah. So no mucking around. We had to cut some good stuff. We had to cut some good stuff. Mark, no mucking around. You now have a microphone. Don't muck around with it. The man's got a mic. Right, oh, that no. sound, that's some clear mucking around. That is. Uh, all right, so <laughs> I want to start off with unleashed. this. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to start off with this one. Sorry, Joe Biden... He's in the Democratic nomination race. He's most likely to win. And uh, he had himself a moment on Twitter last week. So 9th of June was apparently Best Friends Day. Uh, One of our most vaunted national holidays. Uh, Of course, he didn't get anything, Pete. Um, But he tweeted out, happy hashtag Best Friends Day to my friend, Barack Obama. And there's a photo of a friendship bracelet, which I'm now presenting to Peter Gregory. One, uh, three beads say Joe, then six beads say Barack. And yeah, six. And uh, but presenting it to Mike, and there's also a smiley heart woven into the friendship bracelet. That's pretty sweet. Pete, the man is 76 years old. Is he 76? The man is 76 years old. He's wearing a friendship bracelet with a former president of the United States. He just weird really, flex, not okay. He just really likes Barack. Yeah, just really likes uh, friendship bracelets. Now, is this him being self-deprecating, or is he trying to be cool? Or this is hey, remember that I was vice president to that guy you liked. Please vote for me. Okay. That's the only thing I can possibly imagine. That's, that was kind of the cynical view from social media. With that's what was going on here. Yes, and you've taken that. I've definitely taken that. I, I know I was very positive in talking about the world is a better place, but I've now reverted to my cynical core. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's good, but it's now slightly worse. Because the other is. part of it, I really want to, I really want to get into the copy here. So it's happy hashtag Best Friends Day to my friend Barack Obama, not mm. best friend. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So getting in on the hashtag Hashtag, but not didn't say best friend. It isn't. It is a like a weird omission mm. on a, on best friends day to just call him your friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's almost like they've had the discussion. Oh, yeah. he's probably not my best friend. Now, had Barack had long flowing hair, I wonder what position we'd be in. Well, look, that's that's an issue, isn't that's it? Because we know how much Joe look, likes. He that just kind of stuff. really likes long hair. Anyway, yeah, loves it. Uh, so, Pete, talk to us about uh, the footy. Oh, the well, weekend. look, we used to have a. I don't follow footy anymore. It's baseball season. <laughs> I'm a Liverpool fan, but we we used to have. Um, a topic, a segment on this show called "It's a Bloody Outrage," 
I think. Like, like, the, noise. like an informal segment. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this would clearly be in that if we still did, which we don't. But anyway, so we told you, you last week. You can just make the noise. Okay. I'm encouraging you to make the noise. The bloody outrage. It's a bloody outrage. Anyway. So we talked about the last week from the fellow from the Richmond Cheer Squad who it's a footy team here in Melbourne who got uh, suspended for calling the umpire a green maggot and urging him to be uh, consistent. Mm. Now that now bloke's been booted from Carlton versus Brisbane game on the weekend, which is two other footy teams for calling uh, an umpire a bald-headed flog. Yep. The guy's name is Frankie. He rang 3RW, a radio station, after the game, and he said, all I said was you can't call the... You can't call the ball one-handed, you bald-headed flog. I got kicked out for watching a game of football and I actually held my tongue. Frankie maintained that he didn't swear because there were kids around. Um, now, we should mention a second witness has come forward and said that he did say something homophobic. Frankie denies this, in which case it would be perfectly reasonable to give him the flick, in my opinion. Mm. But if not, if you are getting kicked out for calling someone a bald-headed flog, we are overturning 150 years of footy culture, James. Yes. Uh, now, I have a counter-offer. Okay. Because the umpires are really cracking down on getting heckled at work. And if there's one thing that does work in asking people, it's asking people politely to stop being mean to you. Mm. Uh, I do think that will work for them in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not going to encourage people to be more creative with their insults. Yeah. Uh, but look, so no one, so the umpires don't want to get heckled yeah. and uh, fans want to keep heckling. Yep. And the umpire's main argument is I don't turn up to your place of work and heckle you like this. Yep. So my counter argument would be we now allow umpires to go out to people's places of work and heckle them in the exact same words. It seems reasonable. I think it'd be funny. Yep. <laughs> Frankie gets a call. Well, not Frankie Sorry. does. <laughs> What do you think someone, Frankie does? Someone wants to see you in reception. So Frankie Moses out. Yeah. And then there's somebody has a right of reply. Yeah. Frankie, you're, you're, I don't know what Frankie You're the worst Should surgeon I, I've ever had. Actually, I don't know if Frankie's a surgeon, but I saw a photo of Frankie and he's actually bald as well. Oh, really? That's the other thing see, about this. That's, so it's not an insult. Yeah. It's this game recognising game. Frankie knows he's a bald-headed flaw. Yeah, uh, because he knows him when he sees him. Yeah, exactly. He knows it. So anyway, look, Gil McLaughlin comes out and says everyone needs to be able to come to the football and feel it's an inclusive environment. Wrong. Um, the concept of PC-ness and everything else is rubbish. So he's saying it's not PC gone mad. It's mm. like, if this is not PC gone mad, then what is Gil? Uh, I don't know if he would be able to recognise it. The, the Richmond Cheer Squad, so they had, we talked about them before, they, uh, they have asked the AFL for a list of terms they're allowed to use. Yep. Good work. <laughs> well called. See you next week. I, I know you're trying you your best. You just cycle through those three. Yeah, exactly. Or I know you're trying your best, Yep. but I don't agree with that decision. No, that's too much. You're out. I said that on the weekend. Got a few lols. <laughs> Anyway. All right. Uh, so uh, I got another one for you here. Back with the louts. I... <laughs> Congratulations, Pete. It was pretty good. Sorry, I just want that. All right. Can we replay that? Peter said something funny at the footy. I want that on record. Yeah. I want that added to the official minutes. Both Mark, teams. take note. Supporters of both teams were laughing. All right, cool. Uh, can, can we please move on? Yep. Do you have any more? Nah, that's all I got. <laughs> that's all good. All right. Uh, I got another one. Sorry. Last week. Last week? Week before. I the Naomi sorry, Wolf yeah. thing. Oh, uh, yeah, that was, was last, that last week? week. Last week. So last week we talked about how Naomi Wolf had one of the all-time radio moments when <laughs> she was informed live on air that the uh, basis of, well, not the basis, but like, you know, the heartbeat of her book talking about the execution of yeah. homosexuals in England in the 1800s happened all the time. Turns out they they didn't happen. They did all not. the ones that she mentioned. Uh-uh. This is why you don't do live, Naomi. This is why you don't do live. We do one uh, of them a week. Uh, <laughs> Just edit them out. Yep. <laughs> so we got a new one. We got a new one to add in. So... You guys might have seen, it got pretty viral, like this idea that uh, married women are completely miserable and the most uh, happy... It went viral. It went viral. <laughs> the most happy people in society were uh, childless and unmarried women. Yeah. Was yeah. the idea. It was covered by news sources across the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, a lot of American places, a lot of Australian places as well. Um, it, yeah. So it was, it's put together by this researcher called Paul Dolan. 
and he's looking at the data and he sees this term that keeps coming up called uh, spouse absent. Mm. Now, he interprets that to mean the spouse is currently out of the room. Yeah. It actually means the spouse is no longer living in the house. Yep, yep. So uh, the idea being <laughs> he thinks that spouses go, oh, I'm really happily married. Yep. And then the guy like asks them, okay, now can your spouse please leave the room? And they say, hey, Jerry, <laughs> just hop out for a sec, mate. Yeah. I'm actually miserable. Yeah. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Uh, so bad look. Yeah, look, it's it's a it's a problem for Paul. Yeah, so Paul's now noticed that yes, I have done something wrong, uh, and we've amended the Guardian, and I've amended my research, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah. the question for you, Pete, is: Choose your champion, Naomi Wolf or Paul Dolan. What's I, the better? What's the better stuff? Up? I haven't got the audio of Paul Dolan. That's the re- thing. Could, That's the thing. Because this came on Twitter. This guy called. Gray Kimbrough just yeah. released this on Twitter, but you know, if I had that, I'd, it has to be Naomi based on the oh yeah, the please three explain seconds that to of me. Like, so, what do you think that means? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it doesn't mean that they die. But yeah, yeah I, I like you know this guy's credit. Uh, Paul says, um, so yeah, I'm sorry about making that mistake. However, the substance of my argument that marriage is generally better for men than women remains. It's like, Paul, are you sure about that? The whole thing's different. Um, now, this seems to happen more and more. We saw a Vox piece about this where there's a whole range of books where uh, mistakes uh, like this have been made and books are coming out with being properly checked. Surely, James, both sexes are equally miserable. I think so. You know. I certainly am. Uh, anyway, uh, Pete, let us talk. Uh, what, what's the other one you had? Uh, uh, glaciers. Oh, yeah, glaciers. So, you guys know that I'm a glacier. Glacier? Glacier fan. Yeah. <laughs> As known by your complete ability to pronounce it correctly. Uh, First try. That's right. So the big ice things, uh, the National Park Service in the United States quietly removed a visitor centre sign saying that the glaciers at Glacier National Park in America will disappear by 2020 due to climate change. Now, keen-eyed listeners, keen-eared listeners will know that it's 2019. So these glaciers have to remo- move quickly for that to be correct. Unfortunately, and, they, and not, they're not well known for being able to move quickly. That is the thing about glaciers. <laughs> they are not quick movers. Higher than average snowfall in recent years has, has meant that the computer model projections made in the early 2000s that these signs are based on um, are incorrect. Oh, my God, first model in history to be incorrect. Um, and so they've had to move them. The guy who's noticed this, his name is he's a blogger, he's called Roger Roots. Mm. Roger Roots has noticed that the, the glacier... Go up, Pete. National <laughs> Big Rooter has on, noticed that Glacier National Park... That, um, has started changing a few other signs as well. They've started to... Um, Mark, it's not too late to leave this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's got a big future. Um, and they've started to add more nuanced signs and things like that um, in other parts of the uh, park as well. Now, Ruta has put up a $5,000 bet to the Glacier National Park that there'll still be glaciers in 2030. Yeah. So 20, it's actually... 20, what? 2030. 2030. <laughs> what do you think? 2030? No, no. So it'd be interesting to see how that turns out if someone from the Glacier National Park or the US Geological Survey goes, yeah, I'll take you on, Ruta. Now, Pete, I haven't uh, read this article, but okay. in between acknowledging that... Uh, sorry, in, in between putting the sign up uh, or acknowledging that the data was incorrect about mm. glaciers being melted away and removing the sign, yep. was there an attempt to fire Peter Ridd? <laughs> no, there wasn't. Damn. All right, <laughs> I thought there might have been. Like, it usually is a way where you go, hang on, everything we've been writing about is false. Yeah. And then before you acknowledge that, you try and fire Peter in. Yeah, no, it didn't quite happen. Peter escaped education. Education? Yep. Execution. <laughs> Execution. In this one. All right, cool. Uh, last one we got. This might take some time because there's a whole lot to unpack from this one. So, cancel your two o'clock. Uh, cancel your two o'clock. Um, and here's an article from the Calgary Herald mm-hmm. titled, Dodgeball isn't just problematic, it's an unethical tool of oppression, says researchers. 
Uh, Might be into that. <laughs> sorry, you're on fire so far. You're on side. All right, mm-hmm. cool. So let's let, let us begin. The games children play in schoolyards are famously horrible. <laughs> if you stop and think about them. Tag, for example, singles out one poor participant, often the slowest child, as the dehumanised it, yeah. <laughs> who runs in vainly in pursuit of the quicker ones. Capture the flag is nakedly militaristic. British Bulldog has obvious jingoistic colonial themes. Red ass, known in America's butts up, involves deliberate imposition of corporal punishment on losers. Any of those you want to unpack? Well, I don't know. Red ass and butts up. We never played that at my school. But um, is this... This is an these are academics, right? That have put together this. Well, thing. this is an article about a re, uh, a academic paper. Well, I think they're hundred percent correct, and that's not a bad thing. No, nah, see, as the slowest child, uh, becoming it wasn't the end of all things. It was it was it was a tough hill to climb. Were you the slowest? Were you? Oh, I was a big boy growing up. But anyway, so tag for example, singles out one participant. Often the slowest child is a dehumanized id. Yeah, you just learn to use angles. That, <laughs> that's what you I was learn to say. use angles, the geometry, hiding. Being able to corral, yeah. it's a mental game at that or point. building alliances. That's yeah. why little fat kids are so cunning. Because <laughs> like, they yeah. develop this skill, which is good later in, on in yeah, life. exactly. Capture the flag is nakedly militaristic. I don't mm. get that one. I don't really know. How, so there's a flag. Yeah, and you've got to capture it. Yeah, I mean, that's not like you've got guns. Yeah, it's just, it's just go get that flag. Yeah, there's not much strategy. Anyway, but, uh, we'll go back into the article. So chime in if you've got anything you want to okay. uh, have a go at. Uh, None rouse the passions of reform-minded education progressives quite like dodgeball. The team sport in which players throw balls at each other, trying to hit their competitors and banish them to the sidelines of shame. Yeah. Look, I'm I'm with the the researchers here, but I think it's a good thing. The the satisfaction you get from nailing some kid in dodgeball, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And you do dominate them in that But also, sidelines are shame. You do get back in the game if someone catches it. So you're not there forever. So there's repentance. (laughs) But I mean, you get them and you go, yeah. Yeah. When the Canadian Society for the Study of Education meets in Vancouver at the Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences, a trio of education theorists will argue that dodgeball is not only problematic in the modern sense of displaying hierarchies of privilege based on athletic skill, but that it is outright miseducative. (laughs) What's the miseducated bit? Well, it's teaching you bad things. Well, it gives you, it certainly is creating hierarchies based on academic skill, but that is good for you to to practice as a kid. Yeah. And also, the number one thing I took away from dodgeball from an education standpoint is yep. that winning is really good and losing <laughs> is very bad. Yeah, which is true. <laughs> which is completely true. Yeah, so... Uh, dodgeball is not a tool... Dodgeball is a tool of oppression. It is not safe because some kids like it. I think it is. Uh, according to an abstract for the presentation led by Joy Butler, as we consider the potential of physical education to empower students by engaging them in critical and democratic practices, we conclude that the hidden curriculum offered by dodgeball is antithetical to this project, even when it reflects the choices of the strongest and most agile students. So what do you, how do you make a game Again, more de- sorry, democratic? You go. Uh, de- how do we make the... Sorry, but basically... What game can they play that's... Or we play dodgeball and once someone gets hit, there's a round table while we figure out who goes out. Yeah. Well, that's going to create more hierarchies. Yeah. The other part of it is, uh, again, the strongest and most agile students. Not necessarily true. <laughs> use the angles. Use right. people. Like, you can see, that guy's not looking at me, all right? Yeah. Look, as a former big kid, I know how to play these games and don't get embarrassed. Hang at the back, pick your moment, all that sort of <laughs> exactly. stuff. Exactly. Let the brave kids run out and nail them. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> the point is, yes. not everyone's a hero. <laughs> Sometimes you need to be a role player. Yeah, role exactly. players win your games. That's right. That's exactly right. I think we used to call it skittleball now that we now that you mentioned it. All right, it. this article keeps going. It, it, Check it out. Like that, 
basically the idea. Like they also reference the dodgeball movie. It, it's a complete hatch job See, that, on the idea of dodgeball. That movie's about the underdog. Yeah. You know, oh. Rising to the top. Actually, I've got a story for you after the show. But anyway, that's it for the show this week. Thanks again to Daisy Cousins and Steve Baxter for those interviews. Uh, make sure you're subscribing to Daisy on YouTube if you're not already. Make sure you're following Steve Baxter on Facebook and Twitter if you're not already. And make sure you're reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts if that's how you choose to listen to it. Make sure you're also telling friends and family about the show. Get the word out there. Pete's got something to say. Only review it if it's a good review. Oh, yeah. No one-star reviews, only five-star reviews. And even if you hate the show, leave us a five-star review, but then in the comments, tell us we suck because you still play into our hands. Pretend the scale works the opposite way. Yeah. Um, Cool. And so that's that. Also, make sure you download... Look, I'm flying without a script here. Make sure you're downloading and subscribing to the Looking Forward podcast as well. That's coming out tomorrow. They're going to be talking about the AFP raids in a lot deeper detail, talk about all the issues that are coming out of that. So if you do care a whole lot about that issue, which I know I do, which I know a whole lot of people do, make sure you're downloading that show. I can't personally wait to listen to it. And if you aren't a member of the IPA already, make sure you're going to ipa.org.au slash join if you do want to become a member. And uh, if you are already a member, you can also go there to make a donation mm. because you can make a tax-deductible donation in time for our favourite time of year, tax season. That's right. Uh, how come there's no tax Christmas carols? <laughs> like tax carols? I don't know. Right. I don't know. Write one. Write one. Uh, that's, and, and then leave it in our iTunes comments after you've left us a five-star review. Correct. And if you've got any questions about anything... About life, about the podcast. Yep. 1-800-BERJO. 1-800-BERJO. BERJO, do you have any uh, time of the day or not. final thoughts from your first day at the, at the desk? Uh, Didn't need to leave anything in the drawers. A <laughs> <laughs> whole lot of corkscrews. <laughs> Dodgeball's a pretty good movie. I'd give it a watch for right. our listeners that uh, haven't gotten around to it yet. There we go. All right. my passing comment. All right, sweet. See, uh, see you guys next week. See ya. You're